We'll be in Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 15, if you guys want to turn there. Would you agree that in every one of us, there's, there's a desire to, to have significance, like our life matters and it counts for something? That whether or not we do anything that's necessarily famous or um, applauded by the world, that we would be remembered in a positive light. A few years ago, some of us volunteered to help out uh, at a working bee at the Castle Hill Cemetery. And we did this a few times. Um, and it's a beautiful, tranquil spot. You know, the kookaburras are, are going for it in the trees. and um, Beautiful place. But I, I feel like it's a really hallowed area where you're walking through, you're trying to show respect to those who have passed and to their family, to their memory. And as we we're cleaning away the burial plots, the, the descriptive words that people wrote were meaningful. They, they were an introduction of that person to me, whether it's a beloved mother or a veteran or a, a loved daughter. or um, So for me, it was, it was like being introduced to a person I'd never met, and there was that memory where their loved ones had invested to say, I want this person remembered for good. I want them remembered like this. And so it's a good question. Um, how do we want to be remembered? Not just after we're uh, gone home to be with the Lord, but how do we want to be remembered now? If we were to take an account of our life, if we were to, to suddenly be whisked from this planet, how would we be remembered? And... More important than seeking a legacy here, because those a lot of those tombstones were were proof that you know memories fade. There were some some that were outside the precinct of the cemetery that you couldn't read them anymore. They were just really really old. They hadn't been restored. So graves molder away, names are forgotten, but God doesn't forget. He remembers, and if we honor Him, we have an eternal heritage that will not be forgotten. And so, uh, yeah, let's, let's pray as we go into God's Word. Lord, we thank you for being an awesome God that you know everything, that you remember, that you know us. You don't have to remember us in a human sense where we're forgetful and we have to be reminded of things. Lord, your eyes are on us. You know what's in our hearts right now. You know what we've done and you know the plans that you have for us and that they're good. Thank you, Lord, that you have opened up your word to us and that you'll open up um, the truth about our hearts as well if we will look to you and consider what you're saying to us today. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your loyal love to us, and we ask that you be honored and glorified as we worship you as we read your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we know that an impression, so the things that I read on those, those headstones, that's not everything there is to know about that person. And, and, and our first impressions of other people, if as we've grown to, to be around them, or we realize that it wasn't a really true depiction of them either. You may have had a pretty negative impression of someone straight off, but then as you got to know them, you realize, well, I, that first impression was not correct. That's not their character. You know, they seemed rude or a, a bit abrasive, but really, when you know them, they're a very loving person, they're very generous and kind. And uh, the book of Nehemiah shows us that Nehemiah was faithful to God all the way through. Our introduction to him is a guy who cared about God, God's people, he prayed, and then he stayed true. 
The people, on the other hand, they had been backsliding. They had forgotten what God had said. These reforms were instituted. Nehemiah leaves for 10 years, and when he comes back, he found a very different situation than the revival and the praising of God that was happening when he left. So 10 years made a big difference in how the people were living. The thing we need to remember is when we honor God with our choices, he will remember us for good. He will remember us for good. And in both senses of the word, positively and eternally. So we will uh, begin in verse 15 of Nehemiah 13. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about on the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. So last week we talked about how after Nehemiah comes back after 10 to 12 years of being away, he got leave from the king, and he finds out that Tobiah has been living in the temple, that Eliashib, the high priest, took out the offerings and cleared out a room that was supposed to house the holy things, and Tobiah the Ammonite was living in the temple. Big problem. And and then he found out that the Levites had all gone back to their fields because they hadn't been provided for by the people, and so he talked to the rulers about that. And he also put the Levites in their place. He caused them to return and said, hey, you can't neglect the house of God. Don't neglect the work of the house of God. He steps in these to deal with these problems, but then it seems to escalate. He, he looks outside on the Sabbath, and what are people doing? They're working on the Sabbath day. They're treading out wine. They're buying things. Foreigners are coming inside, and he, it says he warned them on that day that what they were doing was, was sinful. It didn't seem to make a big impression uh, based upon this text, and he'll deal with the rulers later, but... Uh, The fourth commandment, Deuteronomy 5.14, and many other places, very clear that there was no work to be done on the Sabbath. You weren't to do work. Your servants weren't to do work. Your animals weren't to be burdened with burdens. It was a day of rest for everyone. In recognition that God had made the world in six days, and on the seventh he rested, and so they were to keep the Sabbath day holy and, and have a Sabbath's rest. Now, the people, before Nehemiah left the first time, they had made a promise to God that they would keep the Sabbath. It says in Nehemiah 10, 31, so just a few chapters before, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So this was something the people had promised to God. They reaffirmed their commitment. They said, we are not going to buy things from the foreigners who come. And the foreigners came and the people bought, right? The men of Tyre, or the traders from Tyre came outside the city, inside the city, on the Sabbath. Even before the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah, he had stood in the gate. In Jeremiah 17, 21, Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. So the foreigners are selling. God's people are buying. 
and Nehemiah stepped in to rectify this. So the priority of the people had shifted from keeping God's law and honoring the promise they had made to him and traded for profit. So their their perspective had shifted over time. I'm sure it was small and by degrees. I'm sure when Nehemiah left, they didn't go, well, now that he's gone, let's have that Sabbath fate that we always enjoyed, right? They That wasn't the case. It probably was slowly and by degrees. And they thought, well, you know, the traders are here. We're not breaking the Sabbath to just buy from them. It's convenient. And they justified it different ways. And hey, the rulers are making money. So it, it seemed to be profitable. More to give God, right? We can always justify um, at times our disobedience and breaking of our word. So they were breaking their word. That's the point. So for us, um, if you have questions about the Sabbath, um, because Jesus has instituted a new covenant in his blood, we are no longer required to keep the Sabbath according to the law. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. This is confirmed in Romans 10.4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is our Sabbath. We find rest in him. When we walk with him, we can do good every day of the week. We have rest in him all the time. The principle stands that we sh- uh, day of rest is good, um, but we have rest for our souls every day. We shouldn't say, well, it's a Sabbath. I can't do good on the Sabbath. I can't help you because I'd be breaking the law. And Jesus pointed out, don't you know that the, uh, the Levites and the priests, they break the law every Sabbath, and they're obeying God. So man was not made for the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath day for man. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So whatever he says for you to do, you have the freedom to do. So that's a good principle for us. God had given his people a command, and they had agreed to keep that command. They were fully knowledgeable of what they said, and what they promised to God stopped being a priority. So let this sink into our hearts. If we've said to, before God that we would do something, let's ensure that we do it. And if we cease doing it, let's repent and not continue to, to break our word before the Lord. We, make, we sin when we go back on our word before God. So Nehemiah 13, verse 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. I like that it didn't matter to Nehemiah if he was addressing the high priest or the rulers of the people. If he saw something evil, according to God's word, he called it that. He says, what's this evil thing you guys are doing? And the rulers were doing evil because they weren't using their authority given by God to prevent the evil, to correct the evil, to take those steps. So they were willing participants in the people's sin. And so he goes to the rulers of the people and he he chastises them for their negligence of keeping order on the Sabbath day. They had been lax in teaching or correcting the people. 
Nehemiah reminded them the fruit of that. He says, don't you know that this wall was broken down? We fell into ruin. We went to Babylon in captivity because we were breaking the Sabbath. Do we, do we want to go down that road again, guys? And he, he made them think about, and it's good for us to have a long memory about the consequences of sin, because in the midst of being in sin, we may not real, we may not see the instant effects of it. It's just like if you've been contact, you know, you're rubbing a chemical into your skin. It's being absorbed and it's slowly building up in your liver and in your internal organs and starting to do damage. You don't really realize it at the time. But if you continue that practice, it will make you very sick. It could be fatal, right? So in the same way, he's saying, guys, we don't want to fall into this trap again. Remember where that, where it brought our fathers when they sinned in this way? We need to honor God on the Sabbath. What we sow, we will reap, and we bring upon us God's judgment. Now, Nehemiah, he couldn't change the hearts of the people. Wouldn't that be convenient if we could change other people's hearts, if we could even change ours sometimes? No, we we don't have the power. God has the power to do that. He couldn't change hearts, but as the governor, he could take charge of the gates. So this was a way that he could influence and remind the people about their promise to God and what God had said. And so he took his servants and he gave them a charge concerning the gates. On the Sabbath, so when they became near the Sabbath, he shut the gates. And he posted his servants there and said, no burdens are being carried through this gate. And he had them uh, officiate this and make sure it didn't happen. So it was a way to encourage the people to do the right thing. He couldn't, he couldn't keep them from breaking the law, but he said, we're not going to open that gate. It provides a temptation. It allows the people of Tyre to come in and to sell. No more burdens coming through this gate on the Sabbath day. It occurred to me how important it is for us to also set a guard over the things which come into our minds, which we see with our eyes, the things we hear with our ears. We should carefully monitor what comes in and what comes out of our lives. The things that we entertain, the things which entertain us, the things that we're looking for. Those gates swung wide every day of the week. It was an irresistible temptation for the people. It would lead them to sin. And so he said, on the Sabbath day, we're going to close those gates. Now, there was a small door in the gate where you could pass if you needed to walk in and out. But they had those guards that made sure there were no burdens being carried through the gates. You know, there should be a high standard that we have um, concerning the gates of our eyes and our ears, what we let into our mind. There should be things that we refuse to look at. When we see it, we turn away from it. And we say, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to put that before my eyes. I'm not going to expose myself to that. That's wisdom. There should be um, things we refuse to do. There should be places we refuse to go because we know that that will lead us to sin. Job, he wanted integrity between his heart, his beliefs, and the things that he looked at. He said in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? So he says, I've made me and my eyes, so my soul and my eyes are in agreement. It's not good for me to look at young women, to look at them with longing or with lust, because that could inflame my passion. So I will not look at them. I'm going to turn my eyes away from any potential temptation. 
So there was that continuity between what he believed and how he responded, even with what he looked at. So he wasn't trawling through Instagram looking for eye candy. He was, he made a deal with his eyes. He liked his eyes, but he wanted them to work for him and for good. Now, notice he didn't say, okay, we're sealing up those gates. We're going to isolate ourselves. No more foreign traders ever. He didn't say that. But he made that, that standard to uphold God's rule. The gates served a valuable purpose. They were necessary. They needed the gates. That was how trade happened. That's how they could move things in and out. They, they were useful. Just like our eyes and the internet are useful things. But we should ensure that those gates of our eyes and our ears are used for righteous purposes. And if there's things that lead us to sin, there's a point where we should shut the gate and say, I've been down this road before. I know where it leads, and it's not good. And so I'm going to cut it off at the pass. We can all apply that in many ways. May the Lord apply that to your hearts. Nehemiah 13, verse 20. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Locking the gates encouraged the people to keep the Sabbath keeping out that unwanted temptation to trade, to profit, to or the convenience of it. Now, these people from Tyre, they were not under the law. They, they didn't know the Sabbath from any other day. And uh, it said they closed the gates, and they just set up shop right outside the gates. They camped there and were available. Hey, guys, we're still here. And they were available to buy and to sell. Now, Nehemiah, he saw what they were doing. And it says he warned them once or twice. He says, if you guys, hey, why are you coming here on the Sabbath day? This is a holy day to us. I'm going to lay hands on you. Basically, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to take your stuff. And so once or twice was all it took. They got the message. They were not open. Jerusalem was not open for business on the Sabbath day. So get with the program, fellas. And uh, they got the message. Nehemiah, he took this additional step of commanding the Levites to watch over the gates. So not just his own servants, they couldn't remain forever. Nehemiah wasn't going to remain in Jerusalem perpetually. And so he called the Levites out. He said, you guys, you need to sanctify yourselves. This is your job. On the Sabbath day, you're going to ensure that the Sabbath is being honored, that, that the Sabbath day is being kept to honor the Lord. Now, this scene that plays out at the gates is really interesting. It reminds me of the words that God spoke to Cain. When he was angry at God, he was bitter that Abel's sacrifice had been received and and bitter he had been rejected. And God said in Genesis 4, 6, and 7, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. That idea of sin being at the door. 
right? If we close our eyes, if we close the gates of our minds to, to sinful things, no, it's not far away. It lies at the door. We're only one decision away from falling into sin, for choosing sin and then being ensnared by it. And there's this picture, right? He's like, all right, we're shutting the gates. No traders from Tyre coming in, and yet they're right at the door. They set up shop right outside. And Nehemiah is not content with them staying so close to the city. And you might think, well, hold on. Um, he only has charge of the city. Right outside the city, anything can go on. Well, not so. He, he's, he takes charge of not only his city, but what's immediately outside. It was a threat to the people. Maybe it wasn't a, a threat that they were going to overthrow the city and destroy it, but they were destroying it in another way, through causing them to disobey God. And so he says, I want this influence out of here on the Sabbath day. Don't even camp near these gates. Sin was at the door, and he had the authority God gave him to rule over them. He had authority to say, get out of here. You don't have a right to be by these gates. You are not welcome here on this day. Now, when it comes to sin as Christians, we have power over it. We have authority. It is now dead to us, and we are dead to it. We talked about that uh, tribe Friday night. So things that lead us into temptation, we should remove them far from us. We don't have to just let them camp outside the door. After we're born again, sin and Satan would love to have control over us, to exert their own power over us again. You guys ever been at the house when someone comes to the door and and you just don't want to answer it for whatever reason? You you know it's someone selling something. Or, or some, you know, you, you have your own dramas. You have your own neighborhood. And you just go, who would be knocking on the door at 9.30 at night? And I'm home alone. And I really am not comfortable answering the door. And the knock keeps coming. Well, you can confront it. You can respond to it. Or you can just try to hide and just hope they'll go away. And I think we can be a little bit like that when it comes to temptation. We just hope it goes away. We don't really take any any firm stand against it. And even out of obligation, because, well, there's someone at the door. I, I really, I should probably open it. It's maybe offensive to them if I don't open it. And, and it could be someone bad that you don't want in your house. But, but we might, well, feel a sense of obligation. Well, we should never feel an obligation to sin. We should never accommodate it. And we can say, get out of here. And if you come back again, you know, uh, you don't have to lay your hands on them. We can uh, go to the scripture. It says in 2 Corinthians 10 through 5, it says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So those thoughts, those what-if questions that are bombarding you, the worries and cares, those thoughts that oppose God and his word, you don't have to entertain them. You don't have to open the door to them. You can say, you're arrested and you're thrown in the darkest dungeon where you'll never see the light of day again. You have that power as a Christian. You have strong weapons. You don't have to accommodate people knocking at the door as far as that sinful temptation, those what-if questions that may plague us, that lead us to worry. You don't have to admit them anymore. You can say, you're not coming in, and get away from my gates. (laughs) No time for that. 
That word arguments, it's imaginations in the King James. Imaginations. Imaginations can lead us in a lot of places that, that is not going to be faith in God. So we have strength in Jesus. We have that authority that Nehemiah had to tell those campers to move on. Tell those thoughts to move on. I'm not entertaining you today. So Nehemiah prays, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. This is the second of remember me prayers that Nehemiah offers in this chapter. We have to remember the decisions that Nehemiah is making are not widely popular. They cut into the bottom line. It was overthrowing the normal routine which had been established since his departure. And here he comes back from Persia. And he is, you know, the Levites, are they happy with extra guard duty on the Sabbath? Probably not. Not all of them. I'm sure they're like, ah, I've already got to do this now. And now I've, now I've got to have, I'm here all night at the gates. I didn't have to do this before. You've got the traders. They're not happy. You have the people who were involved in the trade. They're not particularly happy. But Nehemiah didn't care to please them. He said, God, remember me and have mercy upon me with your mercy, greatness of your mercy. And that word is hesed, which means loyal love. And there's really no one word in English that does this word justice. Vine wrote in his dictionary, Hesed is not only a matter of obligation, but also of generosity. It's not only a matter of loyalty, but also of mercy. Hesed implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship beyond the rule of law. So he's like, God, spare me according to the greatness of your mercy, your loyal love for me. Go above and beyond even what's legally you're obligated to do of what you've said. I want to walk in that. I want to receive that. Nehemiah loved God because of his great loyal love towards him. And his making this um, stance about the Sabbath day and about other things, as we'll see, that were very difficult, separating from the mixed multitudes and, and later intermarriage, um, he did this because he loved God and he did it to honor God. His motive was for God not to advance himself, and it was hard. And there's going to be things in our lives that when we take a stand to walk uprightly and to honor God, it's going to cost us. Like Scott was saying, in a world that is departing from God, in a world that's not interested in even hearing about God, when we choose to make a stand on his word for what's right, and we're going to call evil evil, not everyone will be pleased with that. In fact, they will oppose that. They will hate it. And that's what Nehemiah was dealing with. But his response is, Lord, remember me. Verse 23. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him ruler over all Israel. 
Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Whoa. Okay, Nehemiah is very hardcore. He does not mess around. He see, Now he sees this intermarriage where there's these kids who do not know Hebrew. They cannot understand Hebrew. Unlike Ruth the Moabitess who left her family, her language, her culture, her gods, and her heart was knit to Naomi and the God of Israel, these pagan women who were being married uh, to God's people did not have an affiliation with him. They were not loyal to God. And the, the failure of the men was that the children did not understand Hebrew. Now, it was written in the law that the father was to teach his children from the word, to read it to them daily. How could he for, perform his, his duty before God if, and know God if they couldn't even speak the language, if they couldn't communicate? And so he, he was very strong on this point. Um, the men were responsible to marry within their tribe, to keep the inheritance within their tribe. Intermarriage with other uh, nationalities or ethnicities is not the main point here. Because under the law, we see that Jews were permitted to marry people of different ancestry, virgins of other ancestry, under the law. If they took spoil of war, let's say, and there were virgins within that city, they could marry them. That was legal. The problem was, is they were raising a generation who did not know God. They did not know God. They did not fear God. They had had adhered to the Philistine, Moabite, and Ammonite gods. And so he took strong exception with what they were doing. And he reminds them how the, the hearts of foreign women, or the women, the foreign women that Solomon married, turned his heart away from following God. And he was the wisest man of all. He was a great king, a powerful king. But his love for foreign women it led him to accommodate their idols, right? First he made houses for them. Then he made altars for their idols, and eventually he worshipped them. And so it was this progression, again, away from God. He, his heart was not loyal to God as David's was, regardless of his wisdom. We read in 1 Kings 11, where God said his heart did not remain loyal. He did not return in kind with the loyal love God had shown him. And if the wisest man who ever lived couldn't keep himself from um, idolatry because of pagan wives, how could these people expect to? And so he says, we need to, to stop this practice immediately. Now Deuteronomy 7.4, it prohibited marriage against foreign nations and it tells us the reason. It wasn't because God was interested in, in preserving some sort of ethnic line. It says, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So that's the reason. It's not because God prefers one ethnic group over another. It's because you're my people, and I want you sanctified to myself. If you join your hearts to these foreign people who do not share this faith in following me and obedience to my laws, your heart will turn away.
So Nehemiah, he sternly disciplined them. It says he pulled out their hair. He's like striking them, right? Hitting them under the law. Those guilty of wickedness, it says, listen to this, Deuteronomy 25.2. Then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. So the judge would decide how many how many uh, blows that deserves, and in front of everyone, the sentence would be carried out. And so Nehemiah carried it out. He's like, all right, we have to deal with this problem. And uh, he made them swear publicly that they would stop this practice of marrying foreign or pagan wives. They would renounce their idols, they would honor God, and uh, they weren't to make connections with, with people who were not following God, making covenants with unbelievers. And today, we're free to not marry. We are free to marry whom we choose. But the principle remains that children of God ought to join themselves in marriage to those who reverence and love him. It will pull our heart away from him. And if if we're in a situation where we are with an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians, I think, chapter 7 goes into to great detail there that, you know, the man can be won by the chaste conduct of his wife, that if we're married, don't seek to be loosed. If you're not married, don't seek to be married, that we are to follow God's leading in this way. And he'll be with us. He'll protect us. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 6.14. If you could turn there, please. This verse is often used to support uh, the need for Christians to date or marry believers. Um, but the yoking it's speaking of is not limited at all to a marriage covenant. In fact, in context, I would say that it, it's really not about marriage at all. In context, it's talking about the purity of the church. Um, so while the principle remains of being unequally yoked could be could extend to marriage, it's certainly not limited to it. So 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So you see how this extends to more than just relationships. We're talking about uh, business um, ministry, partnerships, the people that you join your heart with, those people that you're joining your heart to, they should be believers for the purpose of, if they're not, they're, they will draw you away from God. Now, this idea of being yoked, it may be lost on us, but to people who harnessed animals, it made a lot of sense. Because you would never plow with an ox and a horse or a horse and a mule for various reasons. Their temperament is different. Their body shapes are different. Uh, a mule, its shoulders are higher than an ox. And a, each yoke is made for a specific breed, and you want animals of relatively similar size. Now, you know, ox is a bit stout, and a mule is a bit taller, but you never even want to put a like a donkey or a mule and a horse together because the mule has way more... Uh, endurance than a horse does. So they're all different. You can put horses together, but it's always horses. And oxen together. Now, not all oxen are the same, right? Some may have horns, some may have different colored patches 
on their bodies, but the nature of them is the same. They're able to work together for one common end, to that one goal. And in the same way as Christians, we are to be yoked with other Christians. We're to have connections with Christians where we're all moving forward in obedience to Christ, filled with his spirit. He says, what what fellowship does light have with darkness? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Well, your part may be that you work in the same business, right? That's a part, but we're not to be yoked with them. We're not to unite our hearts together because if our hearts and our affections are tied up in the same things, it will lead us away from God. So we need to be yoked with people who love Jesus, who seek to follow his word. Then we can walk in the same direction and we can be in agreement and united. Light doesn't have communion with darkness, does it? So the things that influence us to go astray, we need to be mindful of those and to seek Not just say, oh, I need to avoid that, and I need to avoid that. Well, are you yoked with believers? Are you connected with Christians in the body of Christ? Are you seeking to work together to a common end in obedience to him? And that's a great function of the church. I think a lot of conflict in our lives comes from being unequally yoked with unbelievers or with things um, that our affections get tied up with that are not of God. So it's good for us to recognize, like, is conflict in my life coming because I am yoked with an unbeliever? Just to be aware of that in the future, that we'd make righteous choices. Verse 28, back in Nehemiah 13. And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. When Nehemiah heard that the grandson of Eliashib the high priest had married with, uh, intermarried with the daughter of Sanballat, the Horonite, he was the one who opposed the building of the wall in Jerusalem, sought to politically stop the work. Nehemiah chased him off because he was unwilling to to cast aside that connection, that family connection. So he says, I drove him from me. He chased him off like a stray dog. He was like, you know, you're a disgrace to the uniform. You're a disgrace to your calling. You have no business being here because of your connections that you're unwilling to cut off. And he says, I drove him from me. So when you read about what Nehemiah does, what's your opinion of the man? How does he strike you? How does he come across? Because he does strike, doesn't he? It's kind of hard to to read what he does and and be neutral about his, his tactics or his plans or maybe his severity to our 21st century minds he seems a bit severe he may seem a bit callous we don't quite think that is this really the best way to go about it couldn't you have been a little bit more gentle i mean dealing with people here if he heard our opinions i doubt it would matter much to him because he was god's man so my opinion of Nehemiah doesn't really matter, but I think you can say with me 
that he's utterly consistent in that he's motivated in what he did. Like it or not, he was motivated to honor God. And he put himself on the line to see that God's people did what was right. He used his authority not to promote himself, but to get people's eyes fixed upon God, to remember the promises they made to God, and to get them to follow through. He put things in place. He actually took action to help them walk in the right way. And he chastened them. He corrected them as a father loves a son. He chastens a son in whom he delights. He corrected people who went astray. And if they weren't willing in God's, among God's people to do what's right, he says, get out of here. There's no place for you here. We're not going to have darkness in this place. So he says, I've cleansed the people from pagan practices. He stationed the priests according to their calling. He gave them jobs to do. He assigned people to bring in the wood offering and, and the altar, to the altar and the first fruits. And so people were moving in the right direction. Now when it comes to what Nehemiah did, it may seem at, on the surface like Nehemiah had it a bit easy, right? It's, it's kind of easy to have people that agree to follow a rule and you just enforce the rule, right? You just make sure that they do the thing. And if they do the thing, then we're good. The following set rules, uh, we can fall into that trap because it's quantifiable and it's easy to govern in one sense. However, the people didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. They could know the law, but it didn't ensure they had the power to keep the law. And that's the huge problem or the issue with the law is that knowledge of the law brings knowledge of sin. It gives no power to actually keep the law. It can't change your heart. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We've been born again. We've been made alive to God. We have the Holy Spirit and we don't follow uh, rules written in stone anymore but the leading of the Holy Spirit who fills us and equips us to do everything God has called us to do. So God does the work in and through our lives. So we are without excuse. God helps us. We have his word, don't we? We have others who are like-minded in following Christ. We have this fellowship, and the Bible says God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Because we don't have an excuse, let's not excuse ourselves from obedience to God. And as we conclude the book, I wanted to read through Nehemiah's Remember Me prayers, because there's three in this chapter. In Nehemiah 13, 14, after he sets the rulers and Levites in their place, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its service. And then verse 22, we read today, after he commanded the Levites to be cleansed and to guard the gates, he said, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. And really summed up in that final verse, verse 31, Remember me, O God, for good. He wanted to remember, be remembered in a positive light by God. And Lord, don't forget what I've done. I want to be remembered by you. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And what's so amazing is we have given, been given a life by God that is passing away. It's a transitory existence on earth, right? 
But the way we live has eternal implications. The way we live our lives can have an, will have an impact on our eternity. And so it's very important, the decisions that we make. Don't you want to be remembered by God for good? Even if someone else doesn't, like, oh, that guy. Or, oh, yeah, I remember her. And, and they're maybe not so positive. Don't you want God to remember you for good? Is his remembrance of you more important than other people's opinion of you? We have to deal with this issue pretty much every day, don't we? So as followers of Jesus, we're enabled to do good works. We're called to do good works. 3 John 1.11, it says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. Isn't that cool that we can do good things? We're not good in ourselves. Only God is good. But he says, do good. Because if you know God, you can do good. That's what we're called to do. And uh, the Bible doesn't leave us confused about what doing good looks like. Because I, I think when people go, oh, just be led by the Spirit. We're not under the law. Be led by the Spirit. That's a bit ambiguous, right? It doesn't, it doesn't fill, I guess, tick all the boxes that our questioning minds might have in a given situation. But Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. That's the best starting point. But if you could turn to 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8, we see a passage where Peter's quoting from, Psalm 34. So we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is consistent, this whole message is consistent in the Old and the New Testaments. And we have the power through Jesus Christ to fulfill it, to have it fulfilled in your life. And you will be remembered for good. Positively and forever for good. So 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So may we make that commitment to say, this is what I want to be remembered for. This is how I want to live. I want to live my life today in the way I want to be remembered. The life you live today, you don't have to be fettered to the past as far as defining your life, your mistakes, and your failures. We have an opportunity today and with every day that dawns to walk in God's ways, to honor Him, to have those reforms put in place as Nehemiah did. This didn't happen in a day. This took some time. And that we would choose to walk with fellow believers, to yoke ourselves to people who fear God, to want to move ahead in his labor, to honor him. So is it important to you to be remembered by God?
Is that a priority? May it be. Let's live our lives today the way we want God to remember us for good. We know he has a book of remembrance, and I want good things to be written in it concerning my life. You know, as much as uh, I love Nehemiah, I love his heart, and I love that the Bible never says anything ill about him. People might say, oh, well, he's a little heavy-handed here. I have nothing to say about that. Nehemiah is God's man. I want to be God's man. And I, I pray that you want to be God's woman. We want to be God's people, his children, receiving his correction and walking in his ways. Let's thank him. Father, you are such a good God to us. You are our father. We were orphaned and without hope. We are dead in trespasses and sins without you. And you've made us alive. And you've, you've told us to do things, definite things, to love one another, to keep our lips from evil, to turn away from evil and to do good. And I pray that we would be those who are remembered for good. Lord, remember us. May we uh, remember you in everything that we do, that we would seek to honor you and glorify you. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, for those who have gathered to praise you and to read your word. And, And I pray that you would show us, Lord, where there are those unholy alliances in our lives or where we have affections on things that are not helpful and they lead us into to temptation. Father, I pray that you would purge us of such uh, worldly loves that we might just be enraptured with love for you and rejoicing in your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your loyal love to us, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. May we reflect your faithfulness in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.